I struck by, this is from our first reading this morning, this is uh, perhaps, scholars think, the earliest Christian hymn that we have. Listen to what they were writing and singing about. Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the God we worship. Let's pray. Father, we imagine, we, we try to put ourselves in the mindset of what would lead you to send your son to descend further and further still to be clothed in human flesh. And we can't fathom it. It's a story we can't grow tired of. It is, uh, it's myth become fact. It's the reality of the world that we live in. Enchant our hearts again. Capture our hearts with you, the true God, who love us so much more that we, we don't have words or language uh, to comprehend that. God, we return to you. We open our hearts to you. Would you speak to us this morning through your word? We ask and pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. We are going through uh, our year-long series right now through the gospel of Matthew. And um, today we're going to be in Matthew 3, uh, verses 1 through 12. And um, I want to start by saying, you know, sometimes you meet someone, and maybe you had this experience. You're in school or maybe in the workplace, or just out at a coffee shop, you meet someone and instantly you know, like, we're just going to be friends. You know, there's just a sense that we get along with one another. You like the same things I like. There's a, a similar temperament. We're similar life stage. You just kind of have a sense, I know I'm going to be friends with this person. You guys ever had that experience before, right? And you love when it happens. Um, sometimes I think there's people like that in scripture that you just might connect with. And so as I read scripture, I'm kind of drawn to Barnabas. I have this sense that like me and Barnabas, we would be friends. I can imagine us going out for coffee together. I like his, uh, what seems to be his pastoral sensibilities, the way he's willing to be with uh, Paul, the great apostle, but also with John Mark, even after John Mark has deserted them. There's just kind of a sense of his this humility and generous spirit that I think I could get along with Barnabas. I feel at ease uh, as I read his stories in scripture. And then there's John the Baptist. I don't know that John and I have become friends. <laughs> I'm not sure that we will become friends. Uh, his temperament and mine, it, we, we, we probably don't line up super closely. And I love John that he follows Jesus. I just don't think he's the guy that we're going to go out and grab a, a drink or a bite to eat together. John's a fiery preacher. If you've got your scripture in front of you, look at some of these verses I want to call to mind of the kind of preacher that John is. Verse 7, you brood of vipers. You imagine it. Morning Christ Church, have a seat. Brood of vipers. Glad to worship with you. It's, just, it's a temperament that isn't aligned with mine necessarily. Verse 9, he says, you don't say that just because you have Abraham as your father that you're spiritually good. And he just says that right out. Verse 10, the axe is at the foot of the tree and God is about to cut you down and throw you into the fire. Though we wouldn't be friends, I need John the Baptist. And if you've ever looked at the artwork associated with John the Baptist, he's always pointing his finger towards Jesus. John is the one who 
here's the voice of the one calling out in the wilderness. Make way. Here comes the Messiah. Here comes the King. He always points us to Jesus. And he says in this passage, he gives us a critical message, which is about repentance. This week, we're going to talk about repentance. Next week, uh, we'll actually be celebrating baptisms. We'll witness Jesus' baptism. Uh, But today, John says, repent, believe in the gospel. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's what we're going to talk about, repentance, and we're going to let John the Baptist kind of dictate that theme. And um, three things that we'll, we'll see from John's, uh, from his message. First of all, we'll define repentance, and then we'll look at what are we repenting of, different categories of sin. And then finally, I want to give you some tools for how you can practice daily just a lifestyle of repentance that keeps your heart tender and open to God, which is what I think John is pointing us towards. So let's start with the definition, definition of repentance. Um, What is repentance? And I think this goes back to last week's sermon. You remember last week in Matthew 2, we were focused on which kingdom are you a part of? There's the kingdom of the child. There's a kingdom of Herod. And uh, you might go back and, and listen to that, but all of us are living kind of in conflict. We're worshiping the kingdom of Christ, and yet we're also living in the in Herod's world, so to speak, often. And one of the things I said about whose kingdom are you in is I mentioned our Bishop Todd has this wonderful way of saying we never build God's kingdom. We never extend God's kingdom. Rather, we can enter God's kingdom. We can receive God's kingdom. But God's at work building his kingdom. We enter it. We receive it. He doesn't need us to build it. But it begs a question, how do we enter the kingdom of God? How do we, what's the entry point into the kingdom? And John gives us the answer. John the Baptist Verse 2, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repentance is the entryway. It's the doorway. It is the way into the kingdom of heaven. And this word that John uses for repentance, he mentions it three times in our passage. He says it in verse 2, verse 8, verse 11. It's the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia, it's uh, made up of two parts, meta and noia. This word noia, uh, it means something to do with your mind or your thinking, how you reason about things how you consider things, how you think about them. It's uh, the things that you find your heart being drawn towards. It's the value system. As you think of the world and what you prioritize as valuable, it's how you have arranged that value system in the world. And because of that value system, it's how you think of yourself. It's how you think of your own identity in the world. It's how, how you think of making meaning and purpose in the world. This is all kind of wrapped up in this idea of noia, the, the mind, the life of the mind, and how that shapes how you see everything else. And then there's this other part of the word, meta, which means again. So you could say this word metanoia is think again. Reconsider your life with God. Are you in, have you been walking in God's ways or have you maybe gotten off course? Think again, reconsider. Go back and reexamine your place in his world. Turn from your own values and your own identity making. Return to God. Repentance is a rethinking, a reexamination, a turning and opening of our hearts to God. Repent, John says, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We often think about repentance, and um, you might have heard this analogy before. It's like a turning around of a direction. And you can imagine maybe if you've ever been hiking before and you kind of, you're, you're at a crossroads, you don't know which way to go, and you start going one direction, you instantly start thinking, have I gone the wrong way? And after a while, you notice I'm off course. At that point when you notice you're off course, 
You do not continue walking deeper into the woods or deeper down the valley or whatever it might be. What do you do? You stop and you turn back around to the last point where you were found. This is what repentance is. It is a turning back to where you were lost, turning back to the, the spot of where humanity was lost even. Repentance is like that. It's a way of saying that I'm living in God's world and I've missed out on it and somehow I've, I've gotten myself lost in this world. But I can turn around. There can be a turning around in my thinking, my living, my being. There can be a turning and a turning towards God. Which leads us then into a conversation about sin. And I want to talk about some of the different categories of sin, how, what you're actually repenting from. And one of the ways we, the, the Bible talks about sin, it talks about that there's, there's a right way of living. Like there's a bullseye towards living, and you can miss that. You can it's miss the mark. The word is hamartia. You can actually miss out on God's way, either through intentionally missing it or, again, you've just lost your way. Sin explains how we've lost our way. Sin explains how we've missed the mark. And sin says this. This is the, the Christian category for sin, is that every human born into the world is born with a lostness towards God. We're born with a lostness towards God. We're born, um, maybe another way to say it would be you're born kind of stranded at sea, not knowing where home is. So there's this sense of, of separation and isolation that we're all born with. And because of this, every human, uh, whenever you're old enough to begin thinking or making decisions or making choices or your imagination begins activating and firing, you inescapably can't help but perpetuate your own lostness. You can't find home. You can't return back to the, from where you started. You, we all are beginning aloof from God, cast out from God. I think many of you know this. Many of you are aware of this category. So what I want to do is show you some of the different ways the Bible talks about our own experience of this lostness, how we experience sin. Because often we think of sin, I think, primarily in terms of this story, that I once sinned, and then I repented and I was forgiven, and now I'm, I'm just living with God. And that is definitely true. But it doesn't account for the ups and downs of life. It doesn't account for what do you do when, as a believer, you do fall into sin? Does that mean you've been cast out of God's presence? Or what, what happens over, like, how do you spend a lifetime of growing closer to Jesus, becoming more holy? So I want to give you some different categories for how we think about sin and how we cultivate this lifestyle of repentance. Here's the first one. Um, it's the guilt of sin. And guilt is not a word that, um, it, 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 maybe, this, maybe you don't think too much about the guilt of sin. What this means uh, is that all of us, by participating in this lostness, you have actually broken God's law. Like you've actually lived a way that God did, had you not live. And the, the classic example of this is someone who like um, breaks the, you know, get, go, has to go to court because they've committed some crime. Uh, that is the state of how we all begin. There's a guilt, uh, a sense of we have become people who break God's law. So you think of the scripture, Romans 3.23, all have sinned without exception. All have sinned all of humanity, and fall short of the glory of God. And you think of what this affects, what this 
especially affects is our relational status to God. We are cut off from God, but you of course know this. If you're cut off from God, you also are not in good relationship with other people. I often think of humans as jigsaw puzzles, and when you become right-oriented towards God, you become right-oriented towards everyone else. You know, jigsaw puzzle piece, if you try to put it in the wrong spot, it just doesn't fit. So it's once you become oriented towards God, everything else falls into place as well. Um, words we use about this, we use this word justification, means you have been declared holy, you've been declared righteous. We think of the law court that just gave that atonement that Jesus dies for your sins on the cross. We think of what we experience, we experience God's sense of forgiveness and peace with God. And I call this repentance initial repentance because this is how you enter God's kingdom. You repent, you agree with God, you turn around, you reconsider, rethink. I had gone astray, I have been lost. The ways that I've been caught, the ways I've been making identity for myself in the world aren't good. The ways I've been seeking purpose and fulfillment in the world, they're not actually lined up with God's ways. And actually the reason I'm having such a difficult time in life is because I'm living contra God. I'm living against God. So I reconsider, I repent. God, I'm putting my hope in you, the one who, as I just read a moment ago, stepped down and put on human flesh, gave his life on the cross. I think most of us are most familiar with this category of sin. It's called the guilt of sin. Here's the next one. We experience what I would call the power of sin. And this is where sin exercises a power over you. Uh, compulsion over you that you feel that you have to do, you have to do something. So if you've ever had uh, a, an addiction perhaps, maybe towards food or uh, towards alcohol or um, pornography or maybe even just technology, or maybe there's a body image in your mind that you think, I have to attain that, and so there's an addiction towards whatever it takes to attain that, you have felt before this power of sin. It's this power of sin that has that continues to cause you to act in ways that would harm you and harm others. But in his kingdom, Christ breaks this power of sin so that you no longer have to do what this compulsion wants you to do. Like that's one of the benefits of the spirit coming to live in us is that you know that you no longer have to do. It's no longer a compulsory type behavior. So the classic example of this is something like Galatians 5.1. Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, so stand firm, and you don't have to be burdened again by slavery. This affects our will, which is our ability to choose to love God and our neighbor. And words, we think about this sanctification, which is that lifelong process of every day giving ourselves more and more over to God. You think about incapable, I, was, I wasn't able to do something, but now I'm able to do something. I'm enabled to love is the thing you're able to do. Think of freedom. I'm no longer in a, in a bondage and an enslavement that I was in. You think of this power in the spirit, the Holy Spirit working with you so that you can begin to act differently than you used to. And what this type of repentance is, is when Christians repent of particular sins. And what I mean by that is my guess is for most of us in this room, after you begin to initially follow Jesus, you you begin just to have some victories of life feels different, there's a, a new joy or peace in your life, and after a while, things that you thought that maybe, oh, I, I, I'm not going to struggle with that anymore, you find yourself, oh, I did struggle with it. I, I might have, uh, I committed some sin in some certain way. You know, I, I just, I found myself, I fell into this type thing. And so what you would do is you would repent of that particular sin, and you'd say, God, I'm, I am sorry that I did this thing. I'm sorry that this happened. 
You're beginning to learn to walk in freedom, but you fell into an old pattern of living. And if you do fall into a particular sin like this, sometimes people ask, like, well, have I lost my salvation when that happens? And I want to say, no, of course not, because God's mercy is so greater even than our sins. You haven't lost your salvation. Salvation isn't something you lose. Like, I lose my wallet. I lose my keys. I heard my wife laugh at that because she knows... (laughs) She actually bought me a tile recently. It's one of those little uh, trackers, and I've used it. I haven't told you this. I've used it over five times in the two weeks that I've had it. So it's very helpful. I lose. I misplace things. You don't misplace your salvation. God's mercy is so much more. Do you know this? His mercy is so much more powerful. You cannot out his mercy. Now, what you can do, you can willfully, over your life, choose to reject God. That's not, that's not the same as losing your salvation. So if you've committed a sin, you can simply say, God, I, I agree with you. This happened, and I can't believe that this happened, and I'm sorrowful that this happened, and I repent from it, and you change my heart, change my mind. Fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit that I can follow you. That's the second one. So we've talked about the guilt, the power, and here's this third one. You might have thought about this before, the presence of sin. One way to think about the presence of sin is um, sometimes there's a sickness that you get. I think of like the chicken pox, where over the course of your life, the virus is still in your body. Uh, You still have antibodies from that virus in your body. You've been healed of it. You aren't presently experiencing it, but it still somehow is in you in a certain way. And sin is like this. Until we are with Christ forever in his kingdom, your very body carries around in it just the residual effects of sin. That's why all of us will continue to die at some point. In the new kingdom, there won't be death, but even now there is a death to our body because this presence of sin still resides in us. One of the ways you could think about this, how this comes up, this this one is maybe the the most vague, so I want to give you an example about this. And if any of you have ever done work with someone like Pete Scazzaro, an emotionally healthy spirituality, and I know we've had groups around here before that have gone through it, so I know many of you have. You think about, what are those things in my life that just bubble up out of my heart? They just seem to arise naturally out of my heart daily. And it's not even that I have to obey these temptations or these quick movements of my heart that come up, but I'm noticing the fact that that's still what's coming out of my heart. Like They are still coming from within me at some, on some level. And if you've ever done this kind of work before, you know our hearts are a mess, We are always tripping up on the same patterns over and over again. So in my own life, you know, one of the things that I'm prone to, and just to share with you a little bit, uh, where I experience this in my own life, because everyone experiences this, in my own life, I'm prone to something that I'm aware of called enmeshment. And that is, some of you know what this is, it's where you kind of extend yourself, where you end and where another person begins starts to become blurry. And you start to find your happiness, your identity, your well-being in what other people think, how other people feel about you, just kind of locating your identity in relation to other people. Another way to say this would just be people-pleasing, right? Like becoming beholden to other people's affirmation and attention about you. And I have gone through different forms of counseling, met with people, and feel very much, would tell you right now, I feel a total freedom from this. And yet... I'm aware that on every single daily basis, this will come up naturally out of my heart to wonder what others might think of me, how others might respond to me, and a perhaps temptation to yield to other people's opinions rather than locating and rooting myself in the love of God, which is the only thing that is actually eternal. 
Do you kind of feel this presence of sin? And, um, and by the way, that's for everyone. You know, that, that might not be you, but every one of us has these ongoing kind of residualness uh, in our hearts, the effects of sin. Classic example of this is Galatians 5.17. The flesh, our old self, desires what is contrary to the spirit. This affects our heart, like just what comes up naturally out of your heart. And so we use words like glorification, which means there will one day be a day where every part of you is wholly redeemed and you will stand before Jesus face to face. You will be glorified in that day and this will no longer affect you. We think of words like whole, healthy, realizing this is a lifelong process of following our Savior. And the repentance for this is a daily examination of life because it's not even like you're necessarily giving into these temptations, but again, you're just aware these are in the heart. And so every day I'm asking, God, is there anything in my life that isn't living fully in your kingdom? And I want to just repent and say, I want different. I want, I want whatever your kingdom is, I want it fully in me. And so I want to close now um, with talking about how you might cultivate this daily habit of repentance. Like, how, how might you do this so that you have this kind of daily sense of coming before God and receiving his spirit very freshly into your heart and living aligned fully with him? Because that's the goal, open heart to receive God's presence daily. John the Baptist, he says this in verse 8. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance which means that repentance is meant to lead us towards something. It's meant to, repentance is meant to direct us towards where we very naturally, like just the overflow of our lives is a fruitful, loving God, loving others life, growing in Christ-likeness. So let me share with you two tools that, um, that have been helpful for me uh, on this kind of spiritual journey of daily repentance. And you might try them on and just see, does this work? Does this help you kind of keep your heart fresh before Jesus? So the first one is the daily examine, daily self-examine. And what I do is um, kind of at the end of the day, as you're falling asleep, often I've turned off all the lights, I'm in bed getting ready to go to sleep, and I just kind of do a quick replay over the course of my whole day. And what I'm noticing, are there any moments where I have felt any of the strong emotions, especially anger or disgust or uh, something like um, maybe a fear or nervousness in any kind of way, and I'm kind of using that to say, Lord, um, something bubbled up in me there. Like, obviously, I was angry about something. I was going down, I, maybe, maybe you, not me. I was going down I-35, and I was in the left lane, and someone was going slow, and they should have been going fast, and I found myself like just so frustrated in that moment, right? Like, what might that say about me, Lord? I was particularly nervous before a Zoom meeting. And why was that, God? And what's going on there? And am I rooting myself in anything other than you? Or this person walked into the room, and I, I experienced a bit of disgust just to move back from that person. And that's not what I desire, Lord. So what might be going on in my heart there? You just kind of take stock, take inventory each night before you go to sleep. And the reason I, I'm using emotions there, sometimes we're taught as Christians to ignore our emotions, but I, I think emotions also can function as the warning lights on your car dashboard. You know when a check engine light comes on, what it's doing is telling you something's going on under the hood. And when you experience a powerful emotion like the one I'm talking about, um, you're recognizing something is in my heart. Something's not lining up with what I say I believe about God and what I'm actually experiencing of how I'm trusting God on a daily basis. 
So again, this is one tool where at this point you might say, Jesus, I want metanoia. I want to reconsider where I've been rooting myself, and I want to invite your presence in more deeply at this point particularly. Here's another tool. second one I want to offer is the seven deadly sins. And um, seven deadly sins, think of this as just kind of like some really good category for evaluating where you've been. And the seven deadly sins, they aren't... um, they're not biblical necessarily. In fact, they're not biblical. They're just, they're through church history, pastors who have said, here are ways that people often get themselves entangled away from God. So maybe think of them like this. If Cliff was to say, maybe he writes a newsletter and just says, in Austin in the 21st century, here are the particular sins I see Christians struggling with. You would pay attention to it. And you'd say, oh, I wanna pay attention and see if any of that resonates in my life. In church history, Pastors in church history who work with us messy humans have said there are about seven ways that we often find ourselves getting in trouble. And rather than calling them seven deadly sins, they're often called the seven capital sins, meaning capital meaning like the head of something. So you can think of like the, um, maybe like the headwaters of a river. This is where the whole thing starts and then everything else, the rest of the river comes from this one point. So go back to the source. So you might think about this, and what I do with these, about once a month, no more than that, but about once a month, I'll just write them out in my journal on a piece of paper and kind of ask the question, like inviting the Holy Spirit, has there been any moment where I have felt a lean in towards any of these? Am I feeling feeling myself drawn towards any of these? You just kind of work through the list, pride. Is there anything where I'm I'm thinking of myself too much or or maybe the underside of it, I'm like putting myself down because you know both of those exhibit pride, this kind of self-focus. Maybe anger. Is there any point where I am just like becoming irate uh, towards others that, is, that doesn't match the situation? Lust. Is there anyone that I'm sexually fantasizing with who is not my spouse? Envy, which is another, en- envy is another fantasy one. Is there anyone whom I'm envying their position in life. I'm fantasizing if I were in their shoes, wouldn't I be a better person? Wouldn't everything be better for me or something like that? Gluttony, which is not just eating too much, but it's using food or drink or medicine in a way to numb myself from what's actually going on in my life. Avarice, which is using money or power, believing that money or power will insulate me from harm give me control, thinking that if I just get my my 401k or my IRA, whatever it is, maxed out, then I'll be secure, then I'll have freedom, thinking if I just get this position at work, then I'll be totally safe. Sloth, which is not laziness. Sloth is knowing, you can, in fact, you can be very busy and be a slothful person. Sloth means knowing what is good, knowing what is good for yourself or knowing what is good for others and then not doing it. Like I would say 21st century America is very slothful. That we, we spend a lot of time consumed in, uh, in things, knowing what's good. We keep ourselves very busy, but we don't actually do the good that God's calling us to do. So you might just use this in an inventory and investigate and say, God, are you noticing any of these in my life? Am I drawn towards any? Do any find like a, a bit of a root in my heart? And if so, I'm repenting. I daily repent. Metanoia, change my thinking that's led me to this point. Because ultimately, repentance is a grace. It is a way of experiencing so practically God's mercy to you. I mean, you know that, right? 
Like his basic disposition towards you is one of love. That is God's stance towards you. And when you repent, you go before the creator of heavens and earth, and you say, I haven't lived up to your standard. And though you could treat me uh, like a rebel or you could treat me like an outcast, I receive your love because you love me so much. Repentance and practicing this habit of repentance is a way to stay in step with God's mercy. It is a grace to you. And so we follow John the Baptist who says, repent, repent, metanoia, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Let's pray together. Kind Father, we th- God, just to, to think of your grace, it is, it's more expansive than we can think of. And again, go back to, you are the God who sends your son into this world. Lord, give us dispositions, give us hearts of such humility that we recognize who are we, these little creatures in the world, and yet we're the objects of your attention and affection. God, that gives us a sense of peace. Help us to cultivate these habits that keep us near you, because that's our deepest desire in life, Lord, is to live, to stay, to remain near you. It's what we want more than anything else. We offer up our love. We offer up our lives. We offer up just the, the everyday bits of all that we are. We just offer them to you, God, and we say, here it is. Would you use? Would you bless? Would you take us and allow us to be near you? We ask and pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.